I'm Finley Schaefe, a retired Methodist minister. It's reverend. I practiced uh, in four churches in New York City for 40 years. And a woman that I didn't know and was not a member of my church came to see me in my office. I can still see her sitting there. And she told me that uh, her husband raped their daughter, a teenage girl, and the daughter became pregnant. And did I know where she could, her daughter could get an abortion? And I didn't. I did not know what to do or what to say. Uh, I didn't know, I couldn't help her, and she left. Before the 1970s, it was very hard to get a legal abortion in this country. Different states, even different hospitals, had different rules, rules that kept shifting over time. But for the most part, you could not get an abortion unless you were going to die. Connecticut was the first state to criminalize the procedure in 1821, and state by state, the rest of the country followed suit. In 1902, the Journal of the American Medical Association endorsed a popular practice among doctors. They'd refuse to treat a woman suffering from abortion complications until she, quote, confessed to breaking the law. Wealthy women would leave the country and fly to Japan, where abortion was legal. But a woman without the resources to fly around the world had to find another way. Some tried to induce a miscarriage on their own. Most methods at the time were incredibly dangerous. The other option was to pay someone to help them quietly. Maybe a doctor, but maybe not. Oftentimes women would be given instructions like, meet me at X street corner. This is Gillian Frank, historian of sexuality and religion at Princeton. And then they would get in a car, be blindfolded, get up on the table, sometimes be put in stirrups, and have the procedure performed on them. With the blindfold on, never see the doctor's face, and sometimes the procedure would work, but often it would mutilate a woman, it would leave her, they would leave her without an abortion and take her money. Some women would find themselves sexually assaulted by the person offering the abortion, whether they were skilled or unskilled. First of all, she had to have a password to get into the place where the abortion was going to happen. She was met by a man with a mask on. Reverend Barbara Gerlach is talking about a friend who got an underground abortion in New York City. So she couldn't even see the face of the man who was um, providing the abortion and was sent off with nothing. Um, So there was... It was just very dangerous. I mean, the numbers of women who were dying. You know, some coroner reported as early as 1951 that he had seen 1,200 women die in the course of his career. And this, this was a national, I mean, this had national implications. Women were dying because of these, what were called back alley or back street abortions. Women who'd gotten hurt by a back alley abortionist or by trying to induce a miscarriage would often wind up in the emergency room because of an infection or hemorrhaging. As doctors were confronted with the reality of this situation, some felt justified in breaking the law to perform a safe abortion. A sociologist named Carol Joffe gave them a name, Doctors of Conscience. But then, after World War II, there was a shift. 
men returned home and went back to work. Many women who'd been working stopped working. A record number of babies were born. This was the so-called baby boom. And what many employers would do is that they would fire women after they became pregnant to enforce these norms. And this is called pronatalism, the sort of idea that everyone should have children, and this is pushing the baby boom. Families were having three and four children in quick succession. Birth control wasn't easy to get. Abstinence was encouraged. Illegal abortions increased, and so did the number of deaths and injuries. In order to get a safe abortion, some pregnant women would go to a psychiatrist and say they were going to kill themselves. A handbook even circulated to teach women how to fake a suicide attempt. And if they were convincing enough, a psychiatrist might refer them for an abortion. In 1962, a psychiatrist named Sidney Bolter wrote an essay in the American Journal of Psychiatry warning doctors to stay out of it. He wrote, We know that women's main role here on Earth is to conceive, deliver, and raise children. Leviticus 19 is, is in the, it's an amazing chapter, Leviticus 19. It's called the Holiness Code in the whole Bible. It's in the middle of all these rules about priests and what they should do ritually. Rabbi Harold Kudan of Glencoe, Illinois. And it talks about how we should act in terms of others, the stranger, the widow, the, the orphan. One of the most famous is love your neighbor as yourself. But I thought today that is not the most important sentence. The most important sentence is, do not stand idly by the blood of your brother. We cannot be idle when our neighbor is in distress. We just never questioned the fact that motherhood should be a free choice. A woman shouldn't be compelled to become a mother if she didn't want to be. We had uh, pastoral confidentiality. We could talk to women in a way that our conversations were privileged. And um, I thought, well, this is something that I can do. I can help women. A number of clergy and a number of congregations began to see abortion as a choice that women should make. It was a difficult choice, one that she should struggle with. But they believed that you know, we need to prioritize the people who are already living and that there are higher laws that need to be followed because the consequences will be tragic for women and their families otherwise. They decided to take matters into their own hands, secretly. And women seeking an abortion found help in a very unlikely place. Rabbis and ministers all over the country formed an underground network of doctors willing to provide safe abortions. They called themselves the Clergy Consultation Service. And in 1967, they got to work. I'm Phoebe Judge. This is Criminal. The Clergy Consultation Service was helmed by Howard Moody, senior minister of Judson Memorial Church in New York. He held secret meetings in church basements and traveled around the country to meet with clergy in their homes and explain the plan. They also needed to get the word out to women. So in May of 1967, they issued a public statement 
parts of it were published on the front page of the New York Times. They wrote, We believe it's our religious duty to give aid and assistance to all women with problem pregnancies. And they listed a phone number women could call. And that phone number was hitched up to an electronic answering device. And the tape on the machine would have a woman's voice recorded on it, and it would simply tell them the names and phone numbers and times in which a clergy was available for counseling. And it would give them different locations. It would say, for example, if you were calling in New York, they would say, okay, so-and-so is available in the Bronx, so-and-so is available in Brooklyn, so-and-so is available in Manhattan. And then the woman would call that minister or rabbi directly to make an appointment to see that person in their office. And so when a woman came in, she would have to get a note in advance saying that she was pregnant and how far along. And then she would come to the office, a clergy would sit down with her, and they would review options. Do you want to continue with being pregnant and have the baby and keep the baby? Do you want to adopt the baby out? Or do you want to have an abortion? And if they chose abortion, and most women came in knowing they wanted abortions and choosing this, the clergy would have a list of providers ready, and they would help women plan every detail of their trip. The trips would never be in the same state or city in which they met with the clergy. And the reason they did this was their lawyers had advised them, saying, if you send them over state lines, it makes prosecution more difficult. If you send them out of the country, it makes it even more so. Were they putting themselves in an illegal threat? So some states made it illegal to even talk about or give abortion information or referral information like Florida. And so it wasn't just giving an abortion, but talking about abortion, giving abortion information that made this a criminal enterprise. And so clergy felt that they were taking great risks. They worried that their phones were being tapped. They would say, don't say the word abortion over the phone. They would say, use the word problem pregnancy. And they were worried, with good reason, that they were being surveyed by police or district attorneys. The network grew quickly, and they started getting calls from clergy all over the country. Some wanted their names on the list, but others weren't so open. It depended on the congregation, and it depended upon their location. Some were wide open, and so senior ministers often would do this, for example, in Unitarian congregations, with the full knowledge and support of their congregations. Other clergy did it covertly, kept their heads down, did the referrals, and some paid the price. Some ministers were fired from their posts, never to work as a minister again. There's a couple cases in Iowa where ministers were fired because their congregation felt that they were doing practices that were unethical or immoral and that they didn't agree with. But, you know, for the most part, I, I believe that most congregations had some inkling. The Book of James speaks of religion being represented by the, the care of the orphans and the widows and their afflictions. Unwanted, unintended pregnancies and affliction. Uh, it was a natural call, in my sense, to engage in this kind of, of work. I did. This is Reverend Robert Hare. He was a pastor in Cleveland, Ohio in 1969 when he helped an Ohio woman visit a doctor in Massachusetts for an abortion. My attorney uh, had said that you aren't breaking the law. At that time, the doctors were, and they were taking a great risk. Ray for them that they were taking, willing to take such a risk. But 
he said, you know, what you're doing is uh, kind of at the edge, but you're, you're not actually in violation of the law talking to counselees. But uh, it didn't work out that way for me. <laughs> On her drive back to Ohio, the woman had a lot of cramping. She pulled over and went into a police station. She ended up telling the police the whole story, including the names of both the doctor and Reverend Hare. I answered the phone call by the bedside at 6.30 or 7 in the morning one day. It was Associated Press wanting confirmation that I had been criminally indicted in Massachusetts. I had never heard of this. <laughs> uh, didn't know what to do about it, but I could hear the ticker tapes running uh, in the background. What were you being charged with? I was charged with aiding and abetting a criminal abortion. Reverend Hare fought the indictment for years, all the way up to the state Supreme Court, until the case was eventually dismissed. How did the CCS know that the doctors they were working with were trustworthy? They would send female members of the CCS or their assistants to pose as pregnant women. Gillian Frank and interview and investigate the doctors. They would check out where the clinic was. They would see if it was in a safe part of town. They would check out the sterility of the instruments. They would get even be up on the table right before the procedure was about to be performed before they revealed their identity. And so that was the initial assessment. But that spot assessment was followed up by inviting each and every female client who they helped to write a review of the abortion provider. Was he kind? Did he charge you what he said he was going to charge you? Did he have sterile instruments? Assess everything. Tell us everything. And there are these long, detailed letters from women who took them up on this. And so if there was a negative report, if something funny was going on, they would get a call from the clergy. And basically because the clergy were this mass referral system, they had economic leverage. They convinced doctors to reduce their fees and sometimes to waive them altogether. Individual clergy reported using discretionary funds to help women make trips out of the country. Rabbis in New England remember congregants pitching in to offset costs. The clergy were able to find so many doctors who did such good jobs and so many medical providers, because sometimes they used non-licensed physicians, who also did fantastic jobs, and how many women came away not only unharmed, but feeling that the procedure was safe, quick, efficient, and affordable. After a few years, the clergy consultation service had operations all over the country. In some places, there were Roman Catholic priests or nuns in the group. Many of the branches are helping hundreds and hundreds of people per week. It's a profound amount of people that are coming to them for help. The numbers of women coming to them made them more confident about what they were doing. They applied pressure to hospitals and lawmakers and wrote into newspapers, arguing that the law was not and never had been enforceable. They wrote, The public debate on abortion laws is escalating. It is not important any longer to play a numbers game about illegal abortions. We do not believe in statistical morality. They argued that abortion laws disproportionately hurt poor women, especially women of color, writing, quote, the present law, by the way in which it's circumvented, is highly discriminatory, allowing remedy only for those who have access to money and private doctors and private hospitals. 
because clergy were respectable, because they had a lot of social status, because the meetings they have can be seen as privileged and not subject to legal scrutiny, they're in a perfect position to help women on the ground, but also to create a mechanism to challenge abortion laws. And so from there, it snowballs. In 1970, New York repealed its criminal abortion law, and the Clergy Consultation Service could send women to New York for legal abortions. Okay, what we did at Stevens, and this was true of women in all around the state, particularly the women at Stevens, when the dorm opened at 5.30, we would take them to St. Louis. Reverend William Kirby was a university chaplain first at Stevens College in Columbia, Missouri, and then later at Princeton. They would get on an American Airlines flight to Dobbs Ferry in New York. Dobbs Ferry would have a limousine waiting for them at LaGuardia and take them to Dobbs Ferry. We had trained the Dobbs Ferry staff and doctors. We had a nurse on our staff who would go to the clinics and train doctors. The women would be there get a, get the abortion fairly quickly and then have a couple of hours to see if she was not going to hemorrhage. Then they would take her back to the plane. She would be on the 5 o'clock American Airlines flight back to St. Louis. Car would pick her up and she'd be back in the dormitory within the same day by 10.30. And subsequently, we sent our nurse. American Airlines allowed us to teach this, the uh, flight attendants on that 5 o'clock flight back to, from LaGuardia to St. Louis, that they may have a woman there who had had an abortion and might be hemorrhaging, and she taught them what to do. So how many women would you say you supervised or oversaw putting on that flight? I, I estimate myself at 3,000, and, and, and we were... I, I, I don't know the answer to that question, thank you, frankly. I told my secretary, when the cops come, call my lawyer first and my wife second. <laughs> the legislature in Jefferson City, Missouri, called me before a Senate hearing, because if you in, in Missouri, if you even pointed toward the airplane and suggested abortion, you were guilty. I took the Fifth Amendment many times that night. Why don't you think more people know about um, CCS and what happened? We kept no records. We weren't taunting the, the police. And so nobody knew about us except people who wanted an abortion. And the women knew about us in the community. By 1972, the Clergy Consultation Service was operating in more than 600 locations across the country. The next year, when Roe v. Wade granted women the constitutional right to have an abortion, some clergy shifted their focus to making sure women had access to contraception. Others went back to normal life, leading their congregations. Do we have any numbers about how many women were served? In some ways, it's impossible to know for sure exactly how many women obtained an abortion through the CCS. And so it depends how you do the math. I would say conservatively, they helped upward of a quarter of a million women. And I think that because they kept such poor records or they would destroy records out of necessity, we don't really have the exact number. 
How did you hear about this? I discovered them by accident. I was looking at the legislative records, and I'm looking at these debates in the newspaper articles, and I keep seeing mention of the clergy consultation service. And I was so surprised. I said, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't sync up with any of the stories I've heard. I thought naively at the time that religious folk were conservative and opposed abortion and that abortion rights activists were secular. And it turns out that this story is much more complicated. This past May, the surviving members of the clergy consultation service met at Judson Memorial Church in New York City to mark the 50th anniversary of their formation. They came from all over the country. Most of them had never met in person before. There was a church service open to the public, and the clergy consultation members sat in the first two rows and stood up to be recognized one by one as their names were called. Audio mix by Rob Byers. Julianne Alexander makes original illustrations for each episode of Criminal. You can see them at thisiscriminal.com. You can find us and say hi on Facebook and Twitter. Criminal is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. We're a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a collection of the best podcasts around. Shows like Radio Diaries, a show which tells extraordinary stories of ordinary life. In their latest episode, they tell the story of one of the darkest periods in Mexico's history. In 1968, Mexico City was preparing to host the Olympics, and the government was hoping to show off the new modern Mexico. But for months, student protests had taken over the streets, and the government wanted them gone. We heard some shots. We didn't know where they came from. And seconds later, how do you say in English, all hell broke loose. Somebody said they were not real bullets. These are only blanks. Don't be scared. Don't be scared. Be calm. But they were not blanks. The troops have moved in. It started off as a peaceful demonstration. The army was circling this plaza called the Plaza de Three Cultures. They were holding a peaceful rally, but now the troops have come and you can hear what it sounds like. Go listen. Radiotopia from PRX is supported by the Knight Foundation, and special thanks to AdZerk for providing their ad-serving platform to Radiotopia. I'm Phoebe Judge. This is Criminal. Radiotopia from PRX.